time for Legally Speaking, joined by Michael Mulligan, barrister and solicitor with Mulligan Defense Lawyers. Morning, Michael. How you doing? I'm doing great. Always good to be here. What's on the agenda for us today? Well, the first thing I wanted to comment on, I was listening uh, to a question that a caller uh, asked a few minutes ago about what uh, authority there would be to prevent things like uh, trucker blockade of the legislature. Um, and uh, indeed, the criminal code has provisions which would capture exactly that kind of conduct. Um, in particular, Section 423 of the criminal code uh, makes it a criminal offense to block or obstruct a highway uh, if your purpose in doing that uh, is to uh, force somebody to do something they have a lawful right not to do or to uh, compel somebody to abstain from doing something. So you cannot blockade a highway in order to try and get your way. Uh, that amounts to a criminal offense. Um, in addition, uh, we have the events of mischief with which some of the people from Ottawa are charged. There are various ways somebody can commit mischief. Uh, including Section 431B, uh, which is obstructing, interfering uh, with a person's lawful use or enjoyment or operation of property. Um, and so, in, in ex so that would prohibit you, for, you know, from example, for example, uh, sitting outside somebody's house blaring your horn all night long, you're clearly going to uh, interfere with their lawful use and enjoyment of their property property. Yeah. Uh, and if somebody were to engage in uh, that kind of behavior, or indeed, if a police officer had reasonable grounds to believe that somebody was about to commit uh, an offense, uh, either of those offenses, they would have the authority to arrest the person uh, under 495 of the criminal code. Uh, and so there are uh, existing criminal code offenses that would prohibit things like blocking a highway or, or engaging in um, um, sort of behavior like honking your horn all night long, driving around the legislature. Um, and so th that is why, or one of the reasons why, there was some controversy about whether the uh, Emergency Measures Act was necessary. Some would argue that, well, look, there are already these provisions in the uh, criminal code uh, that make uh, that kind of conduct uh, a criminal offense. Yeah. Uh, and so the uh, police could simply uh, arrest somebody who was doing it or somebody to prevent them from doing it. So we do have existing provisions uh, that would capture uh, uh, what's being contemplated there. Yeah, it's fascinating. There was a report, I believe it was yesterday or the day before, on the Toronto Star about a large denomination of cryptocurrency being uh, frozen or seized in relation to an as-yet-unspecified criminal investigation that arose from the convoy matter in Ottawa. I, I'm not sure how it works exactly with warrantless surveillance of bank accounts under the or in the emergency period, but the, the more time that transpires between the emergency period and now, the more I think that surveillance powers may have been the issue, but I don't know. Sure, and even in non-emergency periods, there are provisions for things like production orders to get access to uh, records like that, uh, and there are existing provisions in the criminal code uh, that make it an offense to do things like uh, counsel an offense. Mm. And so uh, even in non-emergency periods, you can't encourage other people to go and block the highway to get your way. The act of encouraging or assisting is itself a criminal offense. You become a and you can become a party to it. Mm. Uh, so just like you can't fund somebody's bank robbery efforts, you're also not per permitted to fund somebody's effort to go and block the highway to get their way and force some activity. 
that's not allowed, right? Somebody yeah. says, hey, do you want to invest in my bank robbery by paying for my mask <laughs> gun and car? You can't say, sure, you know, just give me 5% or, you know, I, I hate the Royal Bank or something. None of that's allowed. Uh, and so the same principles that would apply if somebody was uh, giving money to somebody so that they could go and block the highway to force their uh, political will. Absolutely. So we do have provisions dealing with it. Perfect. Well, thank you um, for that, Michael. Yeah, those same provisions tie into the next story I wanted to talk about, um, because in the context of applications for injunctions to prevent blockades, one of the things, again, discussed was, look, those provisions of the criminal code I just referenced already are there. And so courts have considered those in the context of applications for injunctions and recognized that they could also apply. But the fact that there is a criminal code provision that might make a particular blocking activity a criminal offense already is not a reason to deny an application for an injunction. Uh, Part of the analysis would be that an injunction could be broader or tailored in a way to, you know, prevent something from happening, like order people to stay back a certain number of meters or or this kind of thing, um, so that uh, there's clarity about what can be done and what's not permitted. And so one of the cases I wanted to talk about was a recent sentencing uh, decision uh, with respect to two people convicted of criminal contempt uh, who pled guilty to that offense uh, in the context of uh, blocking uh, the Trans Mountain uh, Pipeline uh, expansion project in 2021. Yes. Uh, this being, of course, before it was washed out by the atmospheric river uh, and before we're trying to uh, avoid sending money to uh, Mr. Putin to continue to uh, kill people uh, in, uh, in his war. Yeah. Um, and so this was a sentencing of two people. Uh, one of the individuals there was a 69-year-old retired uh professor. The other individual was a 21-year-old man, neither of whom had any uh, criminal record. Uh, And uh, the 69-year-old professor, um, he, in contravention of uh, the injunction that prevented people from interfering with the efforts to build this uh, pipeline, had climbed up a tall tree uh, and uh, used a bicycle walk to connect himself to it, uh, resulting in the police using a cherry picker to come up and cut off the uh, U-lock and cable to get this man down. Uh, and uh, the other individual had uh, laid down and it looked like he'd tried to make it look like his, uh, he was connected to this thing called a sleeping dragon. Oh, yeah. It's the arm locking device. Yeah, I'm familiar with but it. Oddly, it looks like he wasn't actually connected to it. He just, I guess, tried to look like he was connected to it. They were able to just lift him out. He wasn't actually in that thing, whatever exactly it amounted to. Uh, And so both of these individuals pled guilty, um, and uh, the Crown had uh, requested a sentence of 21 days in jail for the university professor retired and 14 days in jail for uh, the other younger man. Uh, And so it resulted in the court um, analyzing those submissions and the considerations for uh, a sentencing of that kind, Uh, And some of the salient points that the court made uh, included the fact that sentences for criminal contempt would be expected to increase over time. And again, uh, the court applied that principle, right? The idea is, look, you know full well, we've tried lesser sentences and they're not uh, effective. And so uh, simply the court will increase sentences as time goes by uh, in order to ensure compliance. 
There was also an interesting uh, discussion that the court engaged in. The 69-year-old university professor um, had proposed that he be permitted to do 100 community work service hours rather than and to receive a, a week less in prison. Um, and uh, he made a submission to the judge uh, that uh, that would uh, show him how to act legally in the community and would encourage him to do so. The judge had no time for that, uh, indicated that in the judge's view, the sentiment was entirely disingenuous and hardly deserved consideration, uh, referencing the fact that this man had otherwise led a law-abiding life. He didn't have a criminal record. Uh, and, you know, he was obviously a well-educated person who was a retired professor. Uh, and the uh, court commented that he understood uh, how to change government policy and how to do that in a legitimate way. Uh, and that instead of doing so, he had taken it to his own hands to use uh, forces will uh, against lawful commercial activity for his own ends. And, and so rejected that idea that uh, community work service rather than a portion of the jail sentence would be appropriate. Um, also, with respect to both of the men, uh, one of the uh, the judge found it to be a mitigating circumstance that both had pled guilty. So that would have reduced what otherwise might have been imposed by way of a sentence. Yeah. But in both cases, one of the aggravating factors was that both men um, had engaged in um, sort of public discussions about their contemptuous activity um, in the uh, in the media. Uh, and uh, the judge took note of uh, their activity in that regard. And of course, one of the elements of sort of criminal contempt is to do so in a uh, public fashion, right, yeah. which has the effect of sort of undermining uh, respect for the rule of law. Yeah, almost and to so inspire so, others, yeah. Yeah, that's right. You know, it's a different thing if somebody sort of, you know, hasn't read the order or didn't know about it or breached it in some non-criminal way, yeah. where the objective would be getting the person in compliance, right? Yeah. Uh, but when you have somebody intentionally publicly doing something, that's what brings it into the realm of uh, criminal contempt. Uh, and so the, the end of the day for these two men, the sentences imposed were the requested 21 and 14 days. And the judge commented that but for the fact that the Crown had suggested 14 days for the younger man, that it's uh, clear that the judge would likely have uh, imposed a sentence uh, in excess of that, uh, bearing in mind that that man had uh, also engaged in sort of public discussions about the contemptuous uh, activity. Um, and so um, I thought that was just worth uh, noting. Uh, because it's a recent case dealing with that. And, of course, we have these hundreds of uh, people who are charged with uh, breaching uh, similar orders with respect to logging here on Vancouver Island. Yeah, uh, And so that will be very interesting to watch. But this is a uh, recent example of sentencing and those principles dealing with the uh, Trans Mountain uh, Pipeline. Interesting. Michael Mulligan, uh, we'll take a quick break. Legally speaking, we'll continue in just a moment on CFAX 1070. Although I'm just an ordinary guy. I'm not perfect. I don't always get things right. Sometimes I need to be corrected. It's important that we turn to experts in various fields to better understand them, which is one of the many reasons I enjoy our Legally Speaking segment every week with Michael Mulligan from Mulligan Defense Lawyers. Moving on from criminal contempt of court cases, Michael, what's next on the agenda? Uh, next on the agenda is a case involving travel insurance and the concept of good faith. Hmm. Uh, and the way those interplay is this. 
uh, insurance contracts are described as contracts that involve this element of good faith. And it can go both ways. Mm -hmm. From an insured person's point of view, you've got an obligation to be truthful with your insurer and tell them promptly about, uh, you know, what happens uh, with respect to the circumstances of a claim, for example. Uh, and insurance companies uh, equally have a duty, they have a duty of good faith with respect to people that have purchased the insurance policy. And that can include a number of things, like uh, they're required to do a reasonable investigation, they're required to be prompt, uh, they're required to make a balanced and reasonable decision. And one of the lines that's used by courts is they must give consideration to the interests of the insured. Uh, it, just as they give consideration to their own interests. So the idea is they have to act in good faith. They can't be out to get you. Um, and this case, uh, which just went to the Court of Appeal, involved a man who purchased travel insurance prior to a trip to Reno, Nevada. Uh, very sadly, uh, in, this was in 2015, yeah. very sadly the man was having a drink at a bar, experienced a brief loss of consciousness, hmm. fell, hit his neck, and wound up in the hospital for 12 days where they had to install a pacemaker and engage in emergency surgery. Wow. Uh, terrible circumstance for him. Yeah. Uh, it resulted in uh, a uh, medical bills of $293,000. <laughs> and so he made a claim against his travel insurance, right? Yeah. Uh, and another thing to note is that often the person you're buying the travel insurance from will have some friendly name, uh, like in this case, right, the, the seller of the insurance. But ultimately, there's a entity which is the company providing the actual coverage. And in this case, it was Lloyd's Underwriters and Industrial Alliance Insurance and Financial Services, Inc. Um, and so this claim came in, uh, and uh, the uh, insurance company uh, denied the claim, uh, saying that uh, they believed the uh, injury, the claim was caused by being intoxicated uh, with what the judge found to be very little uh, investigation uh, into that, and despite the fact that there were doctors suggesting that that alcohol did not play any factor, right? He needed a pacemaker and had some event. He just happened to be in a bar. Yeah, It resulted in a man eventually got a lawyer, uh, the uh, hospitals and so on were trying to collect from him, collection agencies were after him, uh, he got a lawyer, the lawyer wrote to the insurance company, and shortly before the trial was going to start, about the, whether the company had to pay this uh, medical bill, or medical bills, uh, the uh, insurance company finally, after two years, got a blood alcohol specialist and then changed their tune, and decided that he was covered. Uh, but Without telling the uh, hospitals that, in fact, there was insurance coverage, uh, they then went about trying to successfully negotiating a discount in terms of what they would pay the hospitals and obtained what was described as a uninsured discount of 78%. Huh. I guess the hospitals realized that hard to collect all this money from somebody who has no insurance. So eventually... The uh, Lloyds managed to get these the hospital to agree to accept fifty six thousand four hundred twenty nine dollars, rather than the two hundred and something thousand that was originally billed, and so that's the basis upon which the matter got to trial. The man argued, "Hey, this is unacceptable. These doctors provided and nurses provided wonderful care, saved my life, uh, and you've sort of, you know, his view was cheated them out of what they deserved for all of their good work." Hmm. I, suggesting that I was uninsured. That's not right. And and you didn't pay me for two years, causing major stress and dislocation as um, the uh, 
collection agencies were after him. Uh, and the trial judge agreed with the man. In addition to giving him $10,000 for mental suffering, uh, the uh, trial judge described the conduct of the insurance company as shocking, egregious, and motivated by profit, and found it to be contrary to that principle of good faith. Uh, well, the insurance company didn't like that <laughs> decision, yeah. uh, and they uh, appealed it to the Court of Appeal. Uh, the man also appealed. By this time, sadly, he had passed away, so eventually it was his daughter and his estate by the time this eventually got to the Court of Appeal, uh, and argued that in addition to being in bad faith, because it was in bad faith, the uh, insurance company should have had to pay all of his legal expenses. It wasn't fair that he had to pay those expenses. Well, sadly for the man and his daughter, uh, the insurance company in the Court of Appeal succeeded uh, on their appeal. And the reason for that, uh, the essence of it, was that the Court of Appeal found that the trial judge had relied on the conduct of the insurance company with respect to the hospital, you know, by not telling them that the man had was in fact now going to be covered by insurance, uh, suggesting that he should get this uninsured discount, mm -hmm. uh, but found that the bad faith wasn't with respect to the man, it was potentially with respect to the hospital. And despite how the man felt about that, that couldn't be the basis for a finding of bad faith uh, to support an award to him for the conduct of the uh, how they eventually settled the claim. And they found that it was significant that prior to trial, uh, they changed their tune, even though it took more than two years and agreed the man wasn't impaired and that wasn't the cause of it, uh, but managed to settle the claim despite the fact that it was much less and despite the fact that the man was very upset that the doctors and nurses, the hospitals weren't paid uh, what they had originally billed, that wasn't enough to found a, a claim for bad faith with respect to him. Uh, and then the Court of Appeal went on to find that he wasn't entitled to um, all of his legal fees being paid uh, on the basis that uh, really that's just a matter of interpreting what the contract says. Um, and the contract doesn't provide for that. Uh, and so uh, decisions about uh, uh, fees being paid would be simply a matter of analyzing costs, which are awarded uh, regularly. Uh, and so the net result uh, is that uh, the uh, insurance company uh, does not have to sell this man's estate the $100,000 for bad faith, uh, and uh, the outcome for the uh, uh, hospital that cared for the man would be that they uh, applied a 78% discount uh, and uh, the insurance company won't have to pay for that. Um, so it, it certainly doesn't look like the shiniest day in the world for the insurance company. No. Uh, but at <laughs> but the when end of does the day, it? <laughs> no. But I guess at the end of the day, they're not on the hook for the uh, very large potential uh, award for, uh, for bad faith. So I guess narrowing uh, that concept and making it clear that the bad faith has to be with respect to the insured person. There we go. We've got uh, two and a half minutes left. Sure. So the last one, I could probably summarize on that time. Uh, the last case I wanted to talk about was a man who was rendered a quadriplegic as a result of being seriously assaulted. Uh, and he made a claim under the Crime Victim Assistance Act, which in BC permits uh, money to somebody who's a victim of crime to pay for things like their care needs. Um, and that act, some people may not know, has a provision that uh, where money is paid out, if the individual who was the victim of crime sues and manages to collect money to compensate them for their injury, the province can come and take back 
some of the money that was paid to them under that uh, Crime Victim Assistance Act. And this was a case where this man was so seriously injured, he did sue. Uh, the uh, It was a man injured, it sounds like, at a house party. So he sued like the homeowners and the people that put on the party and the people that assaulted him. Yeah. And eventually came to a settlement with all of those people uh, for much less than what all of his future care would include. And when the settlement was um, agreed to, there was a representative from the Crime Victim Assistance Act of the province who participated in the settlement. And the agreement involved uh, the people being sued, paying back the province some $312,000 they had expended for caring for this man. But... The province had agreed as part of the settlement that they would keep paying for the man's care going forward. They wouldn't make him use all of the money he got as part of the settlement before they would keep paying for his care. Uh, and the case that was just decided found that when the province did so, it amounted to a contract. And the province wasn't able to later come along as they were trying and change their position. So the point was that when a case like that is settled and settled in this way with the province agreeing to the terms of it, that can amount to a contract, which is binding on the province, and they can't simply come along later, as they were trying to do, uh, and change their position to make the man use the settlement funds he received to pay for all of his care needs without any further money coming from the uh, Crime Victim Assistance Act. Hmm. So the uh, out outcome of all of it uh, is that the man will continue to get help paying for his uh, daily care and nursing and all the other things that he will need for the rest of his life. Uh, and won't be required to spend all of the money he got in his settlement uh, before uh, he would continue to receive those benefits because the province agreed not to do that when the settlement was made. Michael Mulligan from Mulligan Defense Lawyers, legally speaking, during the second half of our second hour every Thursday here on CFAX. Michael, a pleasure as always. Thank you so much. Have a great day. You too.